Well, I want to welcome all of you to the 31st broadcast of the Montana DSA podcast. It, the DSA podcast here in Montana is sponsored by the Montana DSA um, Alliance of four chapters across the state. Uh, my name is Frank Kromkowski. I'm a member of Helena DSA chapter, Democratic Socialists of America. Well, I'd say too much about DSA because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that DSA is uh, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Um, going back to uh, Eugene Debs when he was in in, uh, in instituting, you know, socialism in the United States as a as a political philosophy, uh, and continues now uh, as of 1982 when the Democratic Socialists of America was founded as an organization. Here in Helena, we've been a, a chapter since uh, about five years ago, but several of us from the Helena chapter were actually uh, founding members of DSA who traveled from Montana or, else, or elsewhere where we were living to be part of the founding convention in Detroit in March of 1982. So we have a long history with uh, working with uh, democratic socialists. Today, our guest in our 31st podcast in this series is Marjorie Cohn. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about her, but at first I just want to say that this is the first podcast that we're doing that does not focus in strictly on Montana issues because we were commissioned by the DSA Legislative Committee to do a series of podcasts looking at the issues in the Montana legislature and to focus in on three issues, reproductive rights, affordable housing and, and housing rights and rights of workers. And so we did 30 episodes uh, on issues related to the Montana legislature. And in this episode uh, with uh, Marjorie Cohen, Cohen, we're going to focus in on a slightly different issue in the area of uh, journalistic freedom and US policies concerning uh, journalists who report on war crimes. So I want to just tell you a little bit more about Marjorie Cohn. She's Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, where she taught from 1991 through 2016. She's a former criminal defense attorney. She's a former past president of the National Lawyers Guild. She's a co-host of a podcast on WBAI radio in New York called Law and Disorder. I could go on and tell you uh, much more about about her, her activities, but she's a prolific uh, essayist and writer and researcher with many books and articles um, published in some of the journals that uh, a lot of you have heard of. Truth Out, Truth Dig, Consortium News, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, Zenet, and, and others. Um, the topic that we wanna look on today, look at today with uh, Professor Cohen, Cohen is Julian Assange. Now, Julian Assange uh, is imprisoned at the moment. And Marjorie Cohen, I'd like you to ask us or tell us more about why you're interested in Julian Assange. Who is he? Uh, why are you concerned about him? And why are you part of the Julian Assange Defense Committee? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Frank. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, Julian Assange is the founder of WikiLeaks. He is a publisher mm -hmm. and 
journalist. And in 2010 and 2011, WikiLeaks published revelations of war crimes that had been furnished to them by whistleblower Chelsea Manning. And I just want to briefly tell your listeners and your viewers um, what these revelations were, because I think that anybody who has heard about Julian Assange may not really know what those war crimes are that WikiLeaks revealed and that led to his incarceration and his indictment and a request to extradite him to the United States um, for trial uh, of crimes alleged crimes under the Extradition Act. What Julian Assange and WikiLeaks revealed um, was, first of all, the Iraq war logs, uh, 400,000 field reports describing 15,000 unreported deaths of Iraqi civilians, as well as the systematic rape, torture, and murder uh, of people there in Iraq after U.S. forces handed detainees over um, to an Iraqi torture squad. These revelations, these war crimes that WikiLeaks revealed also include the Afghan war diary, 90,000 reports of more civilian casualties by coalition forces than the US military had reported. And they also include the Guantanamo files, 779 secret reports with evidence that 150 innocent people had been held uh, at Guantanamo Bay for years and 800 men and boys had been subjected to torture and abuse in violation of the Geneva Conventions and the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Um, perhaps the most infamous revelation uh, from WikiLeaks in 2010 and 2011 was the 2007 collateral murder video which shows a U.S. Army Apache attack helicopter target and kill 11 unarmed civilians, including two Reuters journalists and a man who came to rescue the wounded, and two children were injured. That collateral murder video, and if you Google it, you will find it online, it's very disturbing, uh, contains evidence of three violations of the Geneva Conventions and the U.S. Army Manual. Now, this, uh, first of all, I should say that Obama, Barack Obama, indicted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all prior presidents combined. But the Obama administration actually considered indicting Julian Assange. They convened a secret grand jury and they decided against indicting Julian Assange because of what is known as the New York Times problem. And that is that WikiLeaks did the same thing that the New York Times, Washington Post, Der Spiegel, um, Le Monde, uh, The Guardian, other newspapers did as well. And if the Obama administration were to prosecute Julian Assange, they would have to prosecute journalists from those groups as well. But along comes Donald Trump. Donald Trump exercised no such forbearance and in 2018, his administration swore out a secret indictment, which became public in 2019, charging Julian Assange with violations of the Com Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, and then filed a superseding indictment, including 
17 charges under the Espionage Act. Uh, it has been an, amended slightly since then, but if convicted, Julian Assange faces 175 years in prison for doing what journalists do. So, um, so Julian Assange is being held in a top secret prison in, it's called Belmarsh Prison in London, um, awaiting the decision of whether or not to extradite him to the United States to stand trial on this indictment on these charges. And in uh, 2021, a U.S. district judge, Vanessa Baratzer, um, denied the U.S. request to extradite Julian Assange because she found after a three-week hearing with extensive expert testimony that Julian Assange's mental and physical health were so fragile that if he were sent to the United States and housed in a top secret, uh, top security prison, um, a practically in solitary confinement, that those conditions of confinement uh, will like would likely lead to his committing suicide. Um, so the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, appealed and presented so-called assurances. Um, this is after the extradition hearing and after the decision against extradition. Um, but then the, the Department of Justice appealed to the High Court of uh, the UK and presented these so-called assurances that if Julian Assange were extradited to the United States, he would not be held uh, in these egregious conditions. The problem is that these assurances <clears throat> contained an exception so big you could drive a truck through it um, and unknown people could decide for almost any reason uh, that they were going to lift those assurances. And sure enough, he would be held in these egregious conditions. So um, the extradition of Julian Assange has been ordered uh, by the UK. The Assange's lawyers have appealed uh, for violations of the US-UK extradition treaty, uh, and of the European Convention on Human Rights. And Julian Assange's appeal is now pending in the high court. Um, and I think we can expect a decision perhaps in October. But the really, um, the, the, the real um, danger to journalism and the First Amendment um, that we are facing if Julian Assange is extradited, convicted, and sentenced under the Espionage Act is that national security journalists, investigative journalists, will be chilled from reporting government misconduct, revealing war crimes, uh, etc., because of what could happen to them. And that's why the stakes are so high in this case. Um, the First Amendment right to freedom of the press is at stake. Well, those facts and that little history, I think, is very helpful. Helpful, but I'd like to ask you too about um, why the U.S. is so hypocritical then about criticizing other governments or saying saying that we're human rights champions, and yet being willing and and and, and not only more than willing, but but covering up on US war crimes, whether it's the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam, or you know the 10 other wars, illegal wars that the government has, um, the US government has engaged in. Um, is it a crime to, in some respects, to um, reveal war crimes under, under any of these laws? 
No, it is not. And that's why his prosecution uh, is, is so dangerous. Um, no publisher has ever been indicted under the Espionage Act for publishing evidence of government secrets. And in fact, um, several months ago, uh, there was an open letter by several um, newspapers, New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, uh, El Pais and Der Spiegel, this was December of 2022, they sent an open letter calling on the US government to dismiss the Espionage Act charges. Um, the letter says that publishing is not a crime. Um, the indictment sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and freedom of the press. Um, now, Joe Biden, who uh, was, of course, Barack Obama's vice president and frequently um, mentions uh, Barack and I did this and Barack and I did that and certainly identifies uh, the uh, developments in that administration, he, he identifies with those developments, um, did not follow Obama's lead, uh, which he should have done and dismiss the Trump indictment against Julian Assange. The Biden Justice Department has been going full speed ahead um, and fighting to extradite Julian Assange to the United States and try him where he would be tried in the Eastern District of Virginia, one of the most conservative right-wing um, judicial districts where the so-called war on terror cases are tried. Um, that plus the inevitable blanket um, vilifying of Julian Assange in the corporate media will make it almost impossible for Julian Assange to get a fair trial. Well, I can understand how someone like Trump would would act that way because he's a person who you know has no respect for human rights, as far as I can tell. And I was reading in your article um, back in um, well July seventeenth uh, that Trump and the CAA under the Trump administration had asked for sketches and options for assassinating um, Assange while he was in prison there in in England. And uh, Trump himself, as you said here, asked whether the CIA could assassinate Assange and provide him options for how to do so. Uh, but why, you would think that Biden's presented as someone who's way a great, great option for for uh, for Trump. But in this case, uh, sounds like something is missing from the human rights policy in the Biden administration. Um, yes, in 2017, uh, Trump's CIA director, Mike Pompeo, um, called WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service and uh, said that Julian Assange didn't have any First Amendment protection because he's not a U.S. citizen. Um, but it's well settled. The Supreme Court has said that the Constitution applies to non-citizens as well. And um, what happened was that in this is not the uh, conduct for which Julian Assange has been indicted. Uh, that was from 2010, revelations from 2010 and 2011. But in 2017, 
um, WikiLeaks published what's what is known as Vault Seven, which was an expose on how the CIA um, has an intensive electronic surveillance program turning your TV, your smartphone, your iPad uh, into surveillance uh, devices so the CIA can spy on all of us. It was it was a, a real bombshell, and it so angered Mike Pompeo um, during the Trump administration that that spurred. Uh, Trump to bring this indictment. Now, uh, I, none of U. None of the U.S. leaders want to become defendants in war crimes uh, trials, war crimes prosecutions, and in fact, um, every uh, every U.S. administration, at least the past three, have tried to stymie the International Criminal Court, which was actively investigating U.S military and CIA leaders for war crimes and crimes against humanity in Afghanistan, as well as Israeli leaders for their war crimes against the Palestinians. And uh, there have been blackmail and threats by the U.S. administrations against the International Criminal Court. So they are mindful that um, they are committing war crimes because every one of those presidents I've mentioned and ones preceding them have committed war crimes. Um, unlawfully invaded other countries um, and and uh, pursued a policy of torture and abuse considered war crimes under the Geneva Conventions uh, and so on. So um, Joe Biden is a company man. He's an institutionalist and I think uh, is not as concerned, obviously, with the First Amendment as Barack Obama was, even though, as I said, the Obama administration indicted uh, more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all prior presidents uh, before. Um, and Joe Biden earlier this year um, on Press Freedom Day made very sweeping uh, comments about how uh, we have to protect press freedom and, uh, you know, and, and it's so important. But then you look at uh, the um, murder and assassination of a beloved Palestinian-American journalist, um, Shireen Abu Akleh, by Israeli forces. And the U.S. government um, has really tried to paper over that and cover it up and not point the finger at Israel. Um, just like before that, um, Washington Post reporter and U.S. citizen Jamal Khashoggi was, basic, was murdered and dismembered um, by the Saudi government, and yet the U.S. government uh, did nothing uh, to to uh, call call that call that out and take any kind of action. So there is a real hypocrisy, as you say, in uh, the U.S. government's uh, um, criticism of certain governments for their human rights violations and uh, and no criticism of other governments. And uh, it's so it's very political. Um, it is uh, not based in the law. It's not based in the Constitution. It's not based in international law. It's situational and uh, and, as you said, hypocritical. And what is your thought or what are some of your th thoughts about why this is occurring? Because you know, the U.S. Uh, population tends to uh, have this notion that somehow we're a shining light on the hill, that we're a human rights beacon to the to the uh, universe. Um, but in fact, uh, as you document uh, in your articles and and in your book, uh, the United States, what the book that you edited called "United States in Torture," uh, that 
Um, the U.S. has probably been uh, one of the worst violators, if not the worst violator of human rights and military law and laws against torture. Uh, what is going on that would lead Biden to do these things or Obama or to have, for example, a Biden uh, propose that we have Elliot Abrams of all people who might comment about, about that to come back into his administration. Elliot Abrams is a, is a person who I would say should be indicted for participating in war crimes in, in Latin America and elsewhere. But Biden is bringing him in or wants to bring him into the Biden administration. What is going on? Is it just that we don't have any basic democracy as our basic value or is it some that there are powers that we need to name that are pushing the Biden administration in the wrong direction? Well, certainly under the Bush administration, as I, I said, you know, WikiLeaks revealed the torture and abuse of <clears throat> boys at Guantanamo. Um, there also uh, was torture uh, of prisoners in U.S. custody at the black, CIA black sites during the Bush administration. Um, Barack Obama continued the program of force feeding Guantanamo inmates, which amounts to torture. It's excruciatingly painful and, and also illegal. Um, the Trump administration uh, continued with its uh, illegal drone attacks, illegal bombings, um, and the Biden administration is engaging in terrible human rights violations at the U.S.-Mexico border um, with asylum seekers. And uh, so these human rights violations basically span all of these different presidencies. And uh, Joe Biden is of course running for president again uh, and uh, wants to, does not want to rock the boat um, and does not want to be accused of imperiling uh, America's national security. And uh, so he is, he is following a lot of these policies. Now he is of course doing some, uh, you know, making some uh, good decisions in the area of labor um, et cetera, and his NLR, National Labor Relations Board, has just come down with a very important decision um, domestically. Uh, but in terms of foreign policy, um, he has broken the law and, uh, and engaged in human rights violations, his administration, just like his predecessors. Um, he knows that he is going to be attacked by the radical right-wing forces, by the Trump forces, um, and uh, probably for whatever he does or doesn't do. Um, but I have not seen a lot of courage from any of these presidents for that matter. Um, in fact, I've seen exactly the opposite um, repeatedly. You know, I, I have seen some courage, but the courage I'm, I'd like to call attention to is the courage of people who have resigned their positions in the US government uh, in opposition to these tactics. And the one person I think you know is Anne Wright. Mm -hmm. um, she came to Montana in 2010, uh, but back in 20, 2003, she resigned uh, from the uh, U.S. Diplomatic Corps. She's a retired Army, Army colonel as well, but she resigned out of, in protest, and she's the highest ranking U.S. diplomat ever to resign, but she came out to Montana in 2010, and uh, we gave her the Montana Peace Seekers Network Peace Seeker of the Year Award, and we've, I followed her, uh, well, constant work since that time, since 2003. Um, but she's such a, a, well, an anomaly because uh, her her conscience really led her to, uh, you know, 
give up a safe, secure position as an ambassador at that time. And uh, she's been all over the world, including some of the places that you'd mentioned, Palestine and elsewhere, to oppose U.S. policies. And uh, is it a matter of Anne Wright not being able to be replicated enough? Uh, or why do people within the government not follow her lead and, and go uh, AWOL from these uh, human rights violations? Well, you're right. Anne Wright is an incredibly courageous person. I work with her in Veterans for Peace, and Anne Wright works full time around the clock for peace, justice, and freedom. Uh, and uh, if we could only clone Anne, the world would be a very different place. Um, you know, it reminds me of uh, during the Bush administration, Colin Powell knew better. Um, he knew that uh, he was being sold a bill of goods when he went before the UN Security Council with that vial and talked about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. He knew that the Iraq war uh, was illegal and yet he went along with it like a good soldier. Um, if he had resigned, perhaps history would have taken a different turn. Um, also, Colin Powell was one of the people who helped cover up the My Lai massacre for one year until journalist Seymour Hersh spilled the beans on it, where U.S. forces went into the Vietnamese village of My Lai and massacred in cold blood um, hundreds of elderly men, women, and children. One of the uh, it, 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 I don't want to say um, one of the only war crimes. It was typical of many war crimes that took place during the Vietnam War and during the Iraq War and during the Afghan War and in many of these other places where the United States is, uh, is uh, killing people. Um, but Colin Powell did not. He did not have the courage that Anne Wright has, um, that Anne Wright had when she, in 2003 when she resigned. Um, and uh, she had she had a tremendous retirement. She had a great job, um, and it took it, an incredible amount of courage. And she uh, does uh, her work, her constant work around the clock with with uh, dignity uh, and with commitment. And she is also one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. In addition to being the most courageous, and it's just too bad that we don't have more Anne Wrights. I recall, as you just mentioned, I was going to mention before you mentioned that um, that Colin Powell had been involved in the cover-up of Me Lai. And I recall David Korn from Mother Jones writing an article about Colin Powell and the fact that uh, he was helping um, the defense uh, secretary at that time cover that up. And I asked him, I asked David Korn, and I think now, in nowadays, you can't get an answer from lots of people because they really don't have email addresses that you can even find. But I wrote to him and I said, what's going on? Uh, you, you, you've recovered this, you undercovered and wrote a story about this, this, uh, this huge uh, crime, cover up of a cover up of the My Lai massacre uh, by Colin Powell. And he just wrote back, he said, you know, seems like the guy's Teflon. Uh, and it is the case that a lot of people know about these things and it does come out whether it's in Seymour Hirsch or Chris Hedges or someone else or John Kiriako or others or Philip Beji from the from the old days who also came out to Montana just after he had uh, left the CIA and started blowing the whistle on the CIA that that all this information in some sense is out there 
but it isn't sinking into enough people. Uh, Anne Wright is a very great exception to that. Um, and I'm trying to find a way to ask you a question. What are the signs of hope that you see with uh, the Julian Assange case or just more the general things you've talked about? Because what you've described here is a, is a, a sad, sad story of human rights violations, cover-ups, uh, the U.S. Uh, trying to uh, indict, uh, well, trying to extradite Julian Assange to bring him here for a trial in the most conservative uh, judicial district to put him in jail for 175 years. Uh, that's a that's a nightmare scenario. Uh, what are some of the hopeful signs that you see or hopeful things you would want us to do uh, to help counteract this, uh, this situation that you've described? Well, that's a very good question. Um, although there's been almost a total blackout of news in the United States about the Julian Assange case, um, in the corporate media, certainly in the alternative media, there there is more information and, and we need to penetrate the corporate media and talk more about the importance of this case. But worldwide, there is a tremendous movement to free Julian Assange. I work with AssangeDefense.org and I urge people to go to that website. Um, there have been thousands of people surrounding parliament in the UK. There have been demonstrations all over Europe all over the world. And now the president of uh, Australia, um, Julian Assange is an Australian citizen, but Australia is calling for the dismissal of the charges. Caroline Kennedy, who is the US ambassador to Australia, recently said that there might be a way, so she intimated that there could be some kind of a plea deal um, to free Julian Assange. I don't know uh, anything about that. Um, I don't think that Julian Assange would agree to be extradited to the United States with the, with the hope or promise that there would be a plea deal. So I, I don't know how far that's going to go. But keep in mind that even though there is this news blackout, at least in the corporate media, on uh, WikiLeaks and the Julian Assange case, that is not the case around the world. And uh, if you go to AssangeDefense.org, you can see a lot of these activities and figure out how you can get involved to help free Julian Assange. You know, um, when you mentioned the uh, news blackout in the United States, I was um, kind of harking back to a comment from Noam Chomsky from, from years ago. I think it was an article he wrote back in 76 uh, in the New York Review of Books, but he used the phrase, the ostrich effect. And he described what he had been doing every day. He, would, he said he had read the New York Times every page from beginning to, to beginning page to the end page every day. And he said, um, you could, you would think that that would get you to truth or something. But he said, actually, he said he had found no reference whatsoever in all that time that he had been scouring the New York Times, supposedly the greatest newspaper on earth in terms of mainstream newspapers at least. Uh, and there was no reference, no hint that there were 700,000 people killed in, um, in the Mideast with US complicity. And he said, okay, so you think you're digging into the news, you know, reading the independent record in Helen every day or Great Falls, Montana Tribune or the New York Times. And he said, it's like 
putting your head into like an ostrich, putting your head into the ground, expecting to come up with something, except to come up with nothing. Said so that's the ostrich effect. You dig, dig, dig into what you think is a truthful source of information, but you come up empty on such crucial things as 700,000 people being uh, killed with U.S. complicity. And, you know, there wasn't one sentence in the New York Times, according to Noam Chomsky at that time. It's, it's a strange phenomenon to see that what we call news is uh, quite a bit of a uh, quite a bit away from what you might might call truthfulness reporting and investigative reporting. Well, the corporate media is being fed uh, its information uh, by the government. They, they are, you know, working hand in glove, even though they purport to be independent. But, you know, speaking of Noam Chomsky, he is one of the three co-chairs of Assange Defense, along with Alice Walker and the late, and I should say incredibly great, Daniel Ellsberg. And I was on a panel with Noam and, and Dan uh, several months ago, and Noam was talking about this, um, this idea of national security because the charges against Julian Assange say that the revelations of WikiLeaks harmed the national security. And Noam Chomsky said that national security is what the government pulls out when, uh, you know, the phrase um, they they bring it out whenever uh, there is information that they don't want the American people to know about the activities of the U.S. government being conducted in our name. That's what national security means. And so uh, just by, as Noam Chomsky says, picking up the New York Times uh, or the Washington Post um, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the newspapers that you uh, that you list in Montana, but many newspapers, um, you're not, you have to really dig, you have to look further if you want to find out what is really happening. Um, and uh, shows like yours, articles that I write on truthout.org, um, make some attempt to do that. But, but those are, um, as you say, alternative sources of information. Um, but but they're not becoming, they're not mainstream in the sense that most people maybe haven't even heard of them. Even people who are uh, active in the uh, progressive movement in Montana, you know, could, could or could not made, you know, read uh, Truth Out or Consortium or Common Dreams, some of those things. I know that um, sometimes people have been very frustrated in getting the word out about things they've discovered that were secrets. I think you may be aware of Tom Nagy, um, who was a friend of mine, and we brought him out to Montana in 2002 after he revealed uh, what he had found by digging into some uh, previously classified defense information um, agency files that the US had uh, plotted prior to the Iraq war to uh, destroy the water system in Iraq, which is a war crime, and then they had calculated, the Defense Department had calculated that within six months of that happening, there would be 100,000 deaths in Iraq. And he then wrote an article in September issue, September 2001 issue of um, the Progressive magazine, um, highlighting that shock, that you know, shocked him. 
and shocked a lot of us to to see that. And so that's why we brought him out to Montana, did a tour back in, in 2002. Uh, but a lot of those things, uh, you know, just not be credible to a lot of people who apparently uh, would think that what are you and I are saying is is off the wall, um, not credible, uh, not truthful. Um, I'm sure that you, like I, have encountered various, uh, you know, attacks on our credibility. Um, what do you, what are, what things do you do to uh, keep up a hopeful attitude for making you continue with your work, even though um, it's been very difficult to make progress on those crucial issues that you describe? How do you keep uh, not a positive attitude, but a, a persevering attitude? Well, the only way I can really get through the day, Frank, is to um, do everything I can to get the truth out to people. And I do write weekly articles for Truth Out um, and am co-host of Law and Disorder Radio, as mm -hmm. you said. But also I do a number of interviews um, with, for example, Montana DSA and other uh, both both corporate and uh, alternative media sites. And so I think that um, the, and I also um, exercise and try to eat good food and, and stay somewhat happy as well. But um, I think that a, a something, a, a kind of a, a rule to live by if people really want to make, make, make a difference and make change um, is to work wherever you're at, um, organize where you're at, talk to the people around you, write letters to the editor, write op-eds. Letters to the editor are very easy to get published um, depending upon who you send them to. But even if you don't get your letter published, if you write a letter to the editor, the editorial board of whatever newspaper will count up the number of letters from that point of view and you will help someone else get published. And so you peg the letter to a news story or an opinion piece, keep it under about 150 words, um, and that reaches a lot of people. And it doesn't have to be in the New York Times. It can be in your community Montana newspaper um, or, or any other newspaper. So I think it's important that people do whatever they can, wherever they're at, and don't be overwhelmed by the pessimism, which is very difficult. It's easy to say it's difficult to do these days. Um, but we have to continue the struggle. We have to continue the fight. We can't just throw in the towel and, and say uh, the powers that be are, are too overwhelming and, uh, and we're paralyzed because if that's the case, then they will win and nothing will change. I was thinking, as you said that, of a saying that was apparently attributed to St. Francis. Like, like a lot of things that were attributed to St. Francis, he never said them, but they're interesting thoughts. He said, even if I knew the world would end today, I would plant a tree. And uh, it sounds like a hopeless kind of thing to, to have someone say, but it's, it's an attitude of saying, uh, you don't know what, what's gonna happen. Uh, we live behind a veil of ignorance in so many ways um, and don't know whether or not something that we might try to do to influence something or even get a you know, letter to the editor in uh, might make a difference in, in important people. In Montana, we do, I mentioned a couple of newspapers, which I would not recommend as sources of, of news, the Independent Record here in Helen and Great Falls Tribune. They're both, both part of what is called the Lee Enterprise System. 
But we do have some alternative newspapers here in Montana. One is called the Montana Free Press. Um, and another is called the Daily Montanan. And we have a few other examples too, but they do have investigative journalists working for them, uh, digging into stories uh, that are crucial um, for uh, the well-being of, of people and of justice and, and, and peace. Um, and so a lot of people in Montana are, are not giving up. Uh, DSA members across the state are working on affordable housing and better forms of affordable housing. We have a housing emergency in Montana, and I imagine it's that way in California as well, where you are. But um, we, the housing navigator at a at a at a uh, social service agency in town here in Helena, Montana, said, "Frank, you've got to realize that we did not have a housing crisis. We have a housing emergency. It's that deep a problem." We do not have enough housing for people. We have at least 20 people a, a year who die out on the streets here in Helena, Montana. And, uh, but there are people in Helena who are not giving up and are working on these kinds of things. Um, I'd like to, uh, I know you've got, got to head out to other commitments, but I'd like to maybe have you one more time mention a few sources of information and the Assange, and the Assange uh, website and organization that you would encourage people to go and explore so that they could um, you know, feed their uh, mind with uh, more truthful perspectives. Because some of those journals, some of the places to go to, some of the shows to listen to uh, beyond um, what they now do, that you would recommend that people would use to uh, feed the the truth uh, gene in their souls. Yes, I would encourage people to go to assangedefense.org, that's A-S-S-A-N-G-E, defense.org. Um, and I write for truthout.org, which carries not just my articles, of course, but many other articles on a lot of these topics where we need to uh, read about the truth and we don't necessarily get it from the corporate media. Um, my articles and books and video interviews are collected at my website, marjoriecone.com. And uh, also there is lawanddisorder.org, which is the radio station for which I'm a co-host um, that comes out weekly. And uh, it, it broadcasts on 150 radio stations across the country and the internet as well. So those are just a few um, things that come to mind that might be helpful to people. Well, thank you for those suggestions. Um, I just want to thank you again for being with us today in the Montana DSA podcast. This is our 31st episode, and uh, we really are appreciative of you taking the time to be with us. And thank you again for uh, your doggedness in, in working on so many issues. Uh, I know that you work on at least 20 different topics um, that are um, outlined on, on your on your own website. It's the kinds of articles you're writing, whether it's on surveillance or human rights or um, economic justice, women's rights, those kinds of things. So I do encourage people to, to uh, follow up on Marjorie Cohn's uh, suggestions to go to those places to take one step further to uh, help free Julian Assange for one and also to uh, counteract some of those uh, 
administrations of the uh, human rights and the, that the CIA and others are committing right at this moment, uh, unbeknownst to us, maybe to be known only if investigative journalists doing national security uncover uncover work will uh, will will bring to the fore. So thank you very much, Marjorie, for being with us today. This podcast will be up uh, online uh, pretty soon, and we'll make sure that uh, we follow up on the good things we've learned from you, including the energy that you have for fighting for human rights and economic justice and for truth uh, and, and the rights of investigative journalists to uh, do their work without being threatened with prison. So I thank you very much for being with us, Marjorie. And... Uh, Thank you all of our listeners for being with us today too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Frank, and keep up your great work as well. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.